This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This podcast may contain strong language and themes listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. No, you're not dreaming, and this really is happening. You have been locked inside your house for at least a week now. Of course, it's less than ideal, but you're saving so many lives by doing so. Just rest in knowing you're not alone. Like you, I'm also in my pyjamas. Truthfully, this week has been hard to process. Even though most of us are at home, there are so many people out there who have to work right now. Please think of those risking their lives every day to slow this virus. My least favourite strand of the internet has been trying to use social distancing as a reason to start a new venture or business. Apparently, we should not take time to rest, connect with loved ones, practice hobbies, and think of ways we can help our immediate communities. Instead, we should get ahead of everyone else while the whole world falls apart. You know what? It's not everyday grind culture. Sometimes, just rest. On the bright side, however, celebrities are completely losing it and keeping us entertained with their unprecedented levels of narcissism. A group of them covered John Lennon's Imagine and it is honestly so tuneless, out of touch and all-round awful. I won't be surprised if scientists declare it the new pandemic. I'm sure you've seen that viral clip of Italians singing Macarena on their rooftops. Well, this week, a few Twitter users tricked pop stars into believing the Italians were actually singing their songs. Katy Perry, Madonna and Cheryl Cole all fell for it. And frankly, it's hilarious. This is Your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review our show. A huge thank you to everyone who has so far. In today's episode, we will be discussing the latest on school closures and exam cancellations, the Windrush report findings and Jay Huss's new clothing line. Because of social distancing, we're not in a studio, but I'm joined remotely by diversity trainer and podcaster Bilal Harry Khan and writer and social media creator Shante Joseph. Exams aren't going to be taking place in this academic year and we're going to be doing everything we can to ensure that people receive their GCSE and A-level grades in August as they would usually do. The government has announced that schools across the UK are closing indefinitely in efforts to curb the increasing spread of coronavirus. A-levels and GCSE exams have also been cancelled. Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary for England, told Parliament on Wednesday After schools shut their gates on Friday afternoon, they will remain closed until further notice. This will be for all children except for those of key workers and for children who are the most vulnerable. The key workers fall into eight categories, including frontline health workers and social care staff, nursery and teaching staff and those involved in food production and delivery. He also said we will not go ahead with assessments or exams and we won't be publishing performance tables for this academic year. 
we will work with the sector and have to ensure children get the qualifications they need. Shante, what are the wider implications of closing schools right now? At the moment, one of the biggest issues is what happens to young people who are in vulnerable situations, who have turbulent home lives, who rely on support workers to assist them or need additional help. Um, I think this doesn't really take into consideration those young people and the things that they may need. It's quite generic to kind of assume that every young person has, I guess, the support network behind them to help them through this. Um, And then obviously you have people who work in, who are key workers who are needed for this crisis. Their kids are still going to school, but then their kids are still vulnerable to catching coronavirus and will still be around other people. So it kind of feels like a bit of a faulty plan. Absolutely. And Bilal, how do we keep young people safe who aren't going to school? To me, the biggest thing is providing young people with access to food when they go to school to get like free breakfast, free lunch, free dinner. It's about local schools providing the care that they need and also the aftercare they need. So making sure those aftercare units, which are mostly done by like previous care professionals. So schools are closing, but there are some still open for the children who can't stay at home. Is that right? Yeah, so schools have closed as per Boris's like agreement. But um, schools are open for care workers' children because there is no provision for them. I've personally volunteered for a local food bank to help out, which goes to like schools, churches, those local places that can like, help people out. But there are a lot of young people who won't even come under that radar, who like will need that food and will need that help. And suddenly the government will need to like recognise that more socialist practices are necessary. There is fear that the government isn't acting fast enough to help those losing jobs when they have to look after their children. I've seen a few petitions set up asking the government to ensure that everyone is kept on full pay if their kids' schools or childcare closes, reimbursing employers just as you would for maternity pay and for more reassurance that no one will be treated unfairly or lose their job if they need to look after their children. I just wonder why at least some of those provisions weren't there in the first place. Shante, is this virus highlighting structural failings within our society? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why like, the government has moved so slow, particularly on schools, because it is then forced to reckon with the idea that so many young people are living in poverty and don't come from supportive backgrounds. And the fact that a lot of parents kind of obviously rely on their kids having a school to go to and even an after-school club to go to so they have time to work if they work irregular hours Um, and also the fact that a lot of parents are just unsupported and don't have access to the things that they need and that there's a kind of critical I guess huge hole in funding particularly for like our social services to actually support these kids and then when you do tell kids that they need to go home you then open this whole Pandora's box of like wider social issues that haven't been dealt with Um, and so I kind of feel like that's why the the government has moved particularly slow. Exactly. And if they if they are firm with it, they're going to have to provide ways that people can deal with these new sets of rules, right? But it seems that there aren't enough resources for that to actually happen, which is why they're moving so slowly on all these issues. In response to schools closing, the BBC has announced it will offer more educational content for those stuck at home. What do you make of these suggestions? Has this unique situation shown just how important the BBC is as an institution? 
I think it's shown how important having access to functioning internet is in this situation. And I guess when I think back to Labour's manifesto and the promise that all households should have free access to broadband and the way that was kind of laughed out the room. But when you're in a situation like this and so many people maybe can't afford to be or just aren't connected, how do we ensure that they have a fair education as well? Um, Obviously, yeah, no, it's important to have um, services like the BBC um, to help provide educational um, materials but more than anything it's about being able to be online and if you live in a place or a village that has terrible connection or doesn't have 5G or whatnot how are you then supposed to participate and I think it's another way that we're seeing the huge inequalities even just regionally in this country. It's just so mad that like suddenly the Tory government are shifting more left in their policy, suddenly seeming to realise that like actually we need to look after people when people come first. I've also seen an article this week which um, literally said it seems that these left radical ideas are actually just common sense because they would have ensured that within the crisis that we're seeing now we would have had the the right infrastructure to deal with dif- different aspects of it um and as you said the free internet was one of those suggestions and also we're not talking about the fact that not everyone has devices to be able to connect to the internet it's just really upsetting i guess to see how people who are the most vulnerable who are already suffering are suffering even more under this and i think uh, maybe a lot of us are quite lucky to be in positions where we can work from home we can work remotely we don't have people who are dependent on us but other people don't so how are you supposed to maintain your job and do your job whilst basically homeschooling your your kids and ensuring that they're taking care of this whole time like and if they don't have the provision if they don't have a computer if they don't have internet access what happens then you're you're just expected to fall under and then when you do go back to school some people are going to be way behind others like how do you then account for that huge gap between who had the access to to continue learning and who didn't Experts warned that the changes would disadvantage black and minority ethnic, working class and other marginalised students who are already underrepresented in the top universities. Professor Kalwant Bhopal, director of the Centre for Research in Race and Education at Birmingham University, told The Guardian predicted grades were often wrong to the detriment of some categories of students. She said, there's a lot of evidence to show that there are stereotypes around particular types of students, so the predicted grades are lower. And when they do the exam, they do better than their predicted grade. Students who are from white, middle class, affluent backgrounds will do very well from these predicted grades, especially those from private schools. Their parents would just go to the school and argue the case that my child isn't a B, they're an A star. And the teachers will take that on board. Those students will do better. Bilal, what are your thoughts on this statement? To say that a child isn't capable based on their background of their degree as someone who's experienced that myself doesn't make any sense i would say that teachers whoever are are like predicting these things need to go back and like have some training themselves it was also in a telegraph that like predicted a level grades are wrong four times out of five and then if you're a student from a poor background or an ethnic minority background then you're also likely to be predicted low grades and obviously in some cases you can see maybe teachers are doing it to cover their own back because they don't want to be held to a standard where you've predicted X amount of grades for students and they don't meet it. But then at the same time, if you do believe less in students of colour, if you do believe less in in, ethnic, in um, working class students, and then you then project your bias on them, 
then like how can they how are they able to come back from that if they don't get to sit the real exam so obviously it will then disadvantage them more if teachers have that bias from day one and they walk into a classroom feeling that way about their kid like then what do you do well exactly this is the problem this is why these predicted grades are an issue because these students who might be given these predicted grades by people who have that unconscious bias they will suffer because they won't be able to prove that they're not their predicted grade it's really tough to offer these student support. So often children that don't speak English at home are marked down in their predicted grades because the teachers think that they're not going to do as well. So when these students are applying to universities, this is when it's going to massively disadvantage them. With exams cancelled and students having to apply to sixth forms and universities, yeah, do you think it is fair to base things on predicted grades and teacher assessments? I don't think it is. Like we said before, if people are being predicted lower than they actually will achieve or for people who maybe don't get into the swing of revision and swing of work until they get to the exam period, it's obviously going to be harder for them. Universities, I just have no idea how they're going to be able to manage that because even representatives from universities have said trying to go off predicted grades is going to be really unfair to particular students. And if students are already underrepresented at certain institutions and across the academy in general, we're just going to see less and less people there. So yeah, I don't know, it's it's a tough one, but I think whatever's done, students definitely need to be consulted and be given a fair, I guess, test of their abilities um, before assumptions are made about them, when we know that assumptions can be informed by um, bias or projections that people may have. Exactly. Maybe we should rethink the way that we grade students. I mean, surely leaving everything until an end of year exam is never actually going to be an accurate representation of a student's abilities. It can very much depend on how they feel on the day. And I think it's also just um, kind of been announced that the government have literally said that as well as using mock mock grades then they need to submit wider judgments about students coursework and whatnot um, and how well teachers think they would do in exams and how do you even predict that do you know what I mean I'm worried about a lot of students and their their future prospects if this goes ahead definitely also the government said there's currently no plans to make a change to tuition fees at universities this is because many universities are expected to continue teaching online but is this fair, especially when so many students have been asked to vacate their premises? Uh, it's not fair because if universities are pushing ahead with the marketization of higher education and they want to behave as if they're businesses, if you run a business and you don't provide your service, then what do you do? You give people a refund. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's like, I don't know, I think it's a bit cheeky for you to be like, oh, um, we're going to operate like a business, but you know, we're not going to give you a refund on this because we're expected to continue running. But if that is not how you learn, if you are not used to using resources online, if you prefer to be in person to have your lectures and you can't access any of that, then, then like, why, why would you not get a refund? I think that's quite cheeky. But the one I do actually understand particularly with I, I found with a lot of places like obviously you need to pay your staff people people need to be paid and I 100% hear that but at the same time I think it's like a bit disingenuous to then be like to students oh we're still taking your money but we're not going to be teaching you anymore. So Bilal you said that despite the fact that the government is acting quite slowly on a lot of things there is some positive action that's happening within communities. Um, someone had posted a letter through my door 
being like, we live on this road. We want to look after anyone who lives on this road who needs help. Or if you are not vulnerable and don't need help, can you help us to help everyone else on this road? I thought that was real cool, you know. But that's like really local action, right? What's happening governmentally? What's happening in the rest of the country? The independent review into the Windrush scandal said Home Office officials showed ignorance and thoughtlessness on the issue of race. So the long-awaited Windrush report has finally been released. An investigation into the causes of the Windrush scandal has been completed and was presented to the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, on Thursday. The inquiry, which prompted an official apology from the Home Secretary, concluded that the Home Office demonstrated institutional ignorance and thoughtlessness towards the issue of race. The Windrush Lessons Learned Review was commissioned by Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary after the scandal came to public attention in April 2018. Inspector of Constabulary Wendy Williams worked on the report for 20 months. The Home Office wrongly designated thousands of legal UK residents as being in the country illegally. Some people were mistakenly deported to countries they left as children about 50 years earlier, and others were wrongly detained in immigration removal centres. Many also lost their jobs after being told they didn't have the right to work in the UK and were denied benefits. Many were made homeless, denied NHS treatment and prevented from travelling. Williams said she met about 800 people and many of the interviews had been extremely upsetting. The 275-page report said the roots of the problem could be traced back to racially motivated legislation during the 60s, 70s and 80s. Priti Patel has accepted the Home Office acted in a way that was institutionally ignorant and thoughtless on the issues of race. But to me, that phrasing sounds like they're still not taking full responsibility for the institutional racism and instead calling it institutional ignorance, as though it was a very big misunderstanding or mistake. The review follows many highly critical reports about the Home Office. Shantae, do you think the Home Office will learn from this? I just don't think they will. I think there's something around like the language of this and 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 Priti Patel apologizing for it being thoughtless or apologizing for it to be for it being something that was like a really small, like a very small clinical error. Whereas this is a huge issue that is like institutional. Um and so I think there's something about it being painted as something that is really small and that just won't happen next time, as opposed to being like, we need to do a thorough investigation of the Home Office and Home Office practices. That doesn't leave me with a lot of faith in the Home Office and what may come next. We're talking about like a class issue, as in this issue will affect working class people more than anything else. Yeah, I think if you are a working class black or brown person who has, I guess, like precarious citizenship or may not necessarily have the papers that, I guess, give you legal right of residency in in the country then you're more likely to be affected by it and I think with the Windrush scandal like particularly it was about kind of Caribbean elders who came here who had the promise of like indefinite leave to remain and then because of some sort of like clerical error they were then like oh sorry you can't you can't deal with this and like obviously 160 people were sent back majority were sent back to uh the Caribbean and then it's like eight uh, up to like 8,000 people's lives were touched by this kind of hostile environment environment policy all because of you know this arbitrary thing we call citizenship could not be proved 
it's a it's a race thing as well, isn't it? It's about black and brown immigrants coming here and under under the impression that they have a certain standing. There have been calls from pressure groups for the Home Office's immigration policies to be scrutinised and assessed whether they're discriminatory. Do you think they'll be doing anything to try and fix the issues they've caused for the people they've already harmed? Sadly not. Sadly, the Home Office will probably not be doing anything. To be honest, this whole situation made me feel really like uneasy about my situation in the country, given that my parents are like immigrant background and I'm now sitting here. Patel gave an official apology in the House of Commons on Thursday, saying, There is nothing I can say today that will undo the suffering. On behalf of this and successive governments, I am truly sorry. The government keeps apologising, but is anything actually changing? Shantae, surely they must now act on their apology. Yeah, but this is the issue. It kind of just feels like they're like, oh, we're sorry for this thing. It was like, it can be seen as maybe reflecting some of the definitions of institutional racism but like the report didn't actually call the home office institutionally racist and I think language is really important here when we're trying to think about laws and legislation and the way that we look back on on issues and I think when you do accuse the home office of being institutionally racist and then you listen to that and you're like well if it's something that's institutionally racist then we need to deal with it on an institutional level this means going through every single level of the home office looking at where things went wrong and looking at how we can reform and, and change things and i kind of think like her just apologizing really doesn't do much there are still issues with the windrush compensation scheme people are still not getting access to to the to the money that they lost over years of dealing with the hostile environment policy so i don't think it's enough to just be like mm, we're sorry about this look how many lives have been lost because of this and how many lives have been ruined i am really upset about it i even think the timing about of of this report being released as well in the middle of this huge virus um kind of does feel a bit disingenuous like there are very few eyes on on this report and this report is very very damning of the entire home office and how it functions as an institution and it kind of just got pushed aside as a sub story on the back of like coronavirus um which for me just feels really disappointing given given how long it's taken this report to come out and how long people have been pushing the government for to 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 get some sort of accountability on what has happened it really doesn't feel like it's enough more needs to be done obviously the recommendations are are thorough about i guess like the way they called out the home office like the way that they used kind of really confusing language to stop people from getting the access they needed the way that they were really heartless and careless and cold and callous towards people who needed help um and so there there are there's a huge institutional this issue here which is about racism and which is about withdrawing humanity and compassion from black and brown people who have proved proved their their worth essentially um which is a really weird way of, of putting it but like you know what i mean you spoke about language as well and um, the report found that the department displayed a lack of empathy for individuals and used dehumanizing jargon and clichés like stock and flow when describing people it's just so dehumanizing does this shock you no not really like the the hostile environment policy itself is like is is basically that embodied do you know what i mean they were just carrying out the policies that were were put forward and that's what those policies are like and it's evil and it takes no into, it doesn't take into consideration the lives that people have built here it doesn't take into consideration the things that people have done for this country it's merely you are or you are not a citizen legally and i think like it's also one of those ones where people 
I guess this happened, this happened gradually over a few years. And in Pretty Patel's speech, she was trying to blame New Labour for it. And there's obviously no doubt that some of New Labour's immigration policies were questionable. But this whole idea of the hostile environment policy was implemented by a Conservative government, rolled out by a Conservative government. Um, And I think the issue here is that when you try and implement into policy a political ideology, it doesn't make any sense. Do you know what I mean? You're not actually taking into consideration real lives and how it affects people. You're just saying, you know, we want to reduce immigration down to the tens of thousands, but then you have zero idea what that actually means means for people and this is the same thing when you don't associate your policies with the people that it affects and you just see it as I'm pushing through this ideological agenda then you kind of miss out what this means for for people and how it impacts their real day-to-day lives um so I'm not surprised that that's the way that the home office were treating and talking about immigrants it's purely ideologically fueled none of this is fueled on stats it doesn't make any sense it's feeding into the nation's sense of insecurity around their own identities and around what it means to be british and britishness and how that's changing and it's appealing to those people by saying we're going to get rid of all of these people that don't fit into this weird sort of lane of of what it means to be an english or a british person so you can feel more comfortable about it yeah and even though I know, for example, like papers like The Sun did run kind of headlines and titles that were more sympathetic towards the Windrush generation. But overall, it kind of feels like the government has really been able to ev- evade scrutiny. Like for a while, it was like BuzzFeed were acting as like the home office and, and stopping people from being deported because their cases were just being ignored. Then BuzzFeed is suddenly stopped, right? Yeah, as, as this has gained more attention and they can no longer kind of do what they want to do under the radar there definitely has been a a dip in kind of reporting these cases but you're still seeing them every day and there are definitely journalists who are covering the stories yeah and I think on the idea that the government is not taking individual lives into account the report found that a target dominated work environment within the immigration system contributed to the scandal which meant that some individual decision makers operated an irrational and unreasonable approach to individuals demanding multiple documents for proof of residence in the UK for each year of residence in the UK even though there was no policy basis on this. The report also found that the department should establish a race advisory board and teach staff about colonial history. Williams highlights the lack of ethnic diversity at senior levels in the Home Office, reflecting in disparity with the public it serves. BAME staff are predominantly concentrated in the lower grades and in 2018 made up around 26% of the lower grades, but only 7% in the senior civil service roles. Do we need better diversity in the Home Office at all levels? Do you think it would help? I don't think it will. We've got a very, very diverse cabinet but yet they're still, they still have the ability and the capacity to roll out really harmful policies that affect those very same people. So I kind of feel like diversity is like kind of one of the smallest issues um, here, considering that if you do have people, being people of colour um, in those positions, they will just get bullied into rolling out whatever the government decides that they want to do. Representation is not enough get brown people in these institutions, all they do is like replicate Tory policies. That's not enough. That doesn't solve the problem. The problem is people have been institutionally socialised to replicate the exact same morals and ideals that like the white Tory capitalist government does. 
One thing I think I'd also like to bring up is this whole idea that in the report they mentioned that the Home Office operated with a a culture of disbelief and carelessness, which I think is really interesting. And even when I think of like our like criminal justice system and you kind of think of like, I guess, black people that have to go through that, this whole idea of not being believed or your your stories not being legit and your very your very being being like something that isn't taken as seriously and it's like I think this is just kind of a reflection of the way a lot of our other British institutions operate um and it, it is it is damning this whole report is damning and but I think there was something quite poignant about not being believed. Let's discuss Jay Huss's new clothing brand. After blessing us with his album Big Conspiracy, UK rapper Jay Huss has released a new clothing line called The Ugliest. The capsule collection called Guerrilla Warfare consists of t-shirts, jackets, silk pyjamas, socks and do-rags. The Ugliest has been in process for a number of years and with sampling and prototyping done in East London, embroidery in Portugal and manufacturing in Italy. The price point varies from £15 all the way up to £850. So have either of you seen the collection? What are your initial thoughts? I've seen it. Um, I think obviously great, beautiful gowns, great gowns. Like I think it does look really cool. But yeah, obviously the 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 price point is a huge, huge, huge issue for people at the moment. And it's stirring a lot of online conversation. But given what you said about the way it's been produced and manufactured, this isn't done in a in a sweatshop. This isn't done in an exploitative way. People are, you know, having to pay the price for it but I, I I do think it's it's worth it if it's made in that kind of ethical way and it's something that they want to market as luxury then that's how much these items cost. That's how I feel as well man it looks really good. Shante as you mentioned there seems to be a debate about the pricing of the clothing with some criticising Jay Huss for pricing the t-shirts £200 and jackets £800 and £850 saying most of his fans won't be able to afford that and that apparently he's not established enough to be charging that much. It's one of those things where I I don't think you necessarily have to have a particular type of status if you want to roll out something like this. You can just do it if you want to do it. And if people like it, they'll buy into it. What does it mean to be established, Shante? I'm not too sure. Maybe they maybe people look to to someone like Rihanna who's, you know, pumped out tons of albums and has hits and has kind of huge worldwide commercial viability and they see someone like her releasing a clothing line as someone who is more um I guess, like, in, in their right to do something like that. And then they look at someone like Jay Huss and they think, oh, maybe he isn't. But I think if you're delineating between something that is, like, merch for your, your tour, that is that buys into your, your brand as an artist, and then you're, you're creating a, a clothing line that is your, I guess, brand as a fashion designer, then those are two, like, really different things. But obviously people only know him or buy into him as an artist and that's what they know him for. So they're seeing something like this and they're seeing it as really inaccessible. But I think there's also something about the brands that people do like to buy and do like to wear um, and how much they're willing to pay for that or they're willing to pay for some of these like legacy brands and whatnot and what makes this different if you still like the person. So DJ Semtex tweeted, the same people that don't think twice about copying a Canada goose, Montclair, dropping 150 on a pair of kicks or buying drinks at a club are the same people questioning the ugliest prices. And I feel like that's that kind of supports what you said, Shante, just there. 
There are many musicians who went into clothing with high price points. You know, why should Jay Huss's clothing range be any different? Maybe because I'm not, you know, too pressed about buying into what he does that I don't really see the issue in it. If it's something that you like, if you believe in him and you believe in his brand and, and the and the value that brings, then you will fork out for it. And if you don't, then you won't do it. I think there's I, I think there may be like an expectation like he is, you know, a young black artist from London who came up in, you know, a certain, I guess, social status and whatnot. And I think people expect him to continue to make whether it be clothes or music that fit into that particular lifestyle. And so you can be kind of like pigeonholed by your identity or pigeonholed by your background, and then you're not able to create outside of that. But I think if that's something that he wants to do, then then fair enough, especially if people are willing to fork out on other brands um, that have the same price point. But, you know, I'm not a diehard fan, so I don't want to speak on behalf of them. But that's that's how I feel about it. You know what? Even if you're not his biggest fan, mm. I appreciate your opinions on sort of the debate because it has been quite interesting. And yeah, people have very different opinions. You know, some some fans feel like because they have been paying for the, you know, to buy the music and to buy the, the tickets to his gigs and supporting him in every way possible. You know, why can't they have access to his clothing brand? But he's not necessarily saying that his clothing brand has anything to do with his music. And also, as you said, there are things that fans can still buy and whether that's merch or even some of the uh, items are about 15 pounds I mean would you pay 15 pounds for a pair of socks I don't know would you no absolutely not but if I was a huge day house fan I didn't have 800 pounds to spend on the coat then I would spend 15 pounds on some socks (laughs) If I could, I would, man. If I could, I would. I guess Jay Huss isn't forcing anyone to actually buy these clothes. Exactly. You have an option. You don't have to buy into it. You can wait until you can. Or maybe he'll create a new line that is more affordable, you know? I just think it's it's not wise to write it off just yet. And, you know, it's, I guess it's always good to sort of diversify your income. Shante, you mentioned earlier that the music industry can be brutal. Yeah, exactly. You see so many artists basically getting done over by dodgy label deals or just not having like the proper adequate like development and support as an artist that helps them to, to stay alive. So I'm kind of all for particularly black artists whose, whose, whose music and culture is often exploited branching out into things that give them longevity. Fair enough. Like it's not necessarily affordable. Maybe it's something that he will think about along the line, but I'm always here for artists um, expanding uh, from beyond music so they do have longevity and they kind of don't rely on on fan bases that can easily be switched over especially as the culture and the sound is more commercialized thank you so much for joining us from wherever you are for our listeners who are wondering where to find you on social media where can we find you um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Shantae J C-H-A-N-T-A-Y-Y-J-A-Y-Y I'm on Tweets by Bilal on Twitter. In other news, Glastonbury, Coachella and the Euro 2020s have been cancelled due to the virus outbreak. Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other is going to be adapted for TV. McDonald's are going to remove plastic toys from Happy Meals to cut environmental impact. And finally... National Trust has opened parks for free to give people access to space during the social distancing period. This has been your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter at the Diora. 
Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag YourBroccoliWeekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Cast, and all your favourite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.